Welcome back to the 91st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including bailing out the rich once again, the Fed's flip-flopping on whether all of the bank deposits are insured, and a new bill from Bernie Sanders that will stop CEOs from being on the Fed boards in their local regions. It's meant to cut down on corruption. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, of course, everybody's been paying attention to what's going on at SVB at Signature. And while the storm has seemed to pass a little bit, we still see a little bit of insecurity in the markets and lots of different fluctuations. So how safe do you feel if you have your money in a bank right now? For those of you who have gold buried somewhere in the backyard, at, you know, the farm, I bet you're all laughing at all of us right about now. But if you have it stuck out there in a bank, are you moving certain funds around? If you're over the limit, are you trying to open a second bank account at a different location to make sure everything's insured? Or are you confident in the market? I just want to know what everybody's general sentiment is, because you obviously see the talk on social media, but that doesn't necessarily represent the average day person. Throw it down in the comments sections. I'd love to hear what y'all are thinking. All right, let's jump to our first story. This one comes from Common Dreams. Bailing out undeserving rich again. So, Obviously, if you've observed what's going on now with SVB, Signature Bank, I don't know if they've technically spoken about First Republic, but you've at least seen the troubles that are going on there and how the Fed or the FDIC has decided to handle the situation. It feels like we're bailing them out again, just like in 2008. And this seems to be unfair to some people. It's people talk about at the end of the day, why are we going to have to bear the negative effects of bailing out these banks? Now, in the past, we've used direct tax dollars. This time we're using more of a guaranteed loan where the government takes on the treasuries or the notes or any assets that are of some value as collateral and then using that as the backing for a loan that the banks can use to pay out their debtors. But if the U.S. government is taking back their old treasury notes from these banks and then just selling them out on the market again, or if even if they're taking them off the market, at the end of the day, if they're worth less money than they were sold for and they would get going to maturity, then the government's incurring a loss which means they may have to just print more money in order to make up for that loss or to put that money back into the economy, which could lead to higher inflation, which means prices go up for everybody, meaning we're technically just taxed, but in a roundabout way. So we don't actually see the tax come through. We don't see our tax dollars go directly to the banks. Rather, we just experience less buying power in the future. 
So it's a roundabout way of taxing the people. And it is, you know, it's a very clever way of implying that, hey, no, 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 we're not using your taxpayer dollars directly. We're not just giving them money. No, no, we're ensuring that these institutions that messed up, they are going down, but we're going to make sure all the depositors are even, even if that means that we're technically making money out of thin air. I mean, it's no big deal. I promise it won't affect you. It definitely won't devalue your dollar at all. So it's clever. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, the premise is still the same. And Common Dreams talks about this in a more general sense. They're talking about the inequality of the market. And I don't agree with a lot of their points that they make here, but it is something that we need to hear and actually talk about, or at least I think it's worth the time. Quote, last week's bailout of small banks, and it was a bank bailout, needs to be seen in the larger context of America's soaring inequality. The standard conservative explanation for why inequality has widened is that individuals are paid what they are worth, and that a few Americans at the top are now worth extraordinary sums, while most Americans are not. Their argument is easily confused with a moral claim that people deserve what they are paid in the market. Yet, the amounts people are paid are morally justifiable only if the legal and political institutions defining the market are morally justifiable, which they are not. End quote. So, to break that down, basically... At the end there, he's saying, well, no, you can only have a morally justifiable market if the institutions and the legal system that put the market in place are justifiable themselves. And you heard that for yourself, but let me actually read into that what he's saying. One, he's saying that there are systemic problems within our legal and political institutions, which you could argue back and forth. I would say we have worked towards a more fair, open political system, everybody, everybody, women, any minority, even different identity groups now have the ability in the legal sense to make sure they are not discriminated against. So I would disagree with that. I would say there's not a systemic problem at this point in American history. In legal terms, everybody is on equal footing. And also, what he's implying is that the market is set up by the politicians and the legal system, which to some degree is true in America. In the idealistic sense, in the pure form of the market, the government would not be involved. But of course, over time, the government has stepped in to protect the worker, allow for unions, allow for antitrust regulation, And a lot of this at the beginning was meant to help the average worker, which is why I find his claim a little bit saddening. Because at the end of the day, there are a lot of protections in place for the worker that allow the worker to leverage their power in the market a little bit more. Now, of course, have things changed and have there been laws that give a little bit more power to corporations? Yes, there have been. But at the end of the day, the root of this change in the market, the interference or the heavy interference of the U.S. government in the market was driven by people trying to make the worker more powerful. So if there's anybody to blame when it comes to this inequality that he's talking about, it's the fact that people who wanted the worker to be more powerful 
and have a little bit more of a say in the market or have a little bit more market power to get more higher wages, more safety implements in their company, then those people are to blame for the government stepping in. And then over time, maybe corporations figured out that they could use this to their advantage and possibly lobby for certain pieces of legislation that benefit them. So if we had just left the market to be, in theory, of course, it doesn't always hold true, but in theory, and we can't know, but in theory, listen to me very carefully here, in theory, it wouldn't be a biased system. It would be one where the companies pay what they can get for workers and workers take what they can get from the companies. But of course, alas, this is not always the case. And we will address his other points here in a minute, but there's another quote that I want to read you. So the moral question, is it morally acceptable that the typical worker's wage has stagnated for the last 40 years while most of the economy's gains have been done to the top? Do you believe that people who are rich are succeeding because of their own inherent worthiness or because the game is rigged in their favor? Have people who are poor failed or has the system failed them? Is it morally acceptable that the pay of American CEOs has gone from an average of 20 times that of the typical worker 40 years ago to over 300 times today? Are the denizens of Wall Street, who in the 1950s and 1960s earned modest sums but are now paid tens of hundreds of millions annually, really worth that much more than they were then? End quote. And, you know, this, of course, is a very easy, it's a very simple way to appeal to your sense of fairness. Is it fair that these people make these grand sums of money? And I do think there is an argument to be made for the people on Wall Street. At the end of the day, they are moving money around. They are giving people investment opportunities. That is valuable. But also at the same time, are they actually creating any new wealth, especially nowadays? In the 50s and 60s, before there was this idea of selling just to make money, but rather to allow customers to invest in a company, to give money to a company that they believe in and therefore spur innovation, I think there could be an argument made for that. But a lot of trading nowadays is done by algorithms. They trade almost immediately. They sell one second, and then the second they see a opportunity to make money, they buy up a different stock and then do the same process over and over, quickly buying, quickly selling. And it's about microtransactions and making a dollar here, a dollar there, just being able to do a lot of them. So in that case, I think there's an argument to be made that they're not adding as much value to the economy as they used to, especially with the decrease of the amount of IPOs that have been put onto the market. But there is a certain logic to the process of CEOs getting more money than the worker. And I want to jump to the next quote that kind of highlights what's happening. And the author doesn't necessarily understand or doesn't take it in a nuanced way to truly break down why this wage differential is appearing, mainly because he mentioned at the beginning that he doesn't agree with the thinking that people get paid what they're worth. But I'll show you or at least try to point out why 
this quote that he's giving us actually gives a little bit of credence to that argument. Quote, some insecurity has resulted from the government's policy of fighting inflation by raising interest rates to slow the economy, putting most of the inflation-fighting burden on average workers who thereby lose their jobs or don't get wage gains, rather than on corporations through tough antitrust enforcement, laws against price gouging and price controls. Basically, the prevailing insecurity is due to the demise of labor unions. Fifty years ago, when General Motors was the largest employer in America, the typical GM worker earned $35 an hour in today's dollars. The American's largest employer now and the typical low-entry-level worker earns about $9 at Walmart an hour. The GM worker was not better educated or motivated than the Walmart worker, end quote. And what he says is, oh, they're not more motivated or educated. But two things. One, GM is a company that creates a good. They are an industrious company that creates a good from ground up. They're putting parts together. They have people who are specially trained at certain jobs to ensure the car gets to where it needs to go. It is could be a dangerous job to some degree if something happens on the plant floor. And it requires, like I said, a certain level of specialization. So, of course, unions had a little bit more power to say, well, hey, this is dangerous. We need our employees to be compensated a little bit more. This is a specialized job. You just can't go and pick some Joe Schmo up from the corner of the street and get him to do exactly what my members are doing here. So, of course, they were paid a little bit more. And the comparison to Walmart, let's be clear, he could probably make a better comparison uh, of another Ford plant nowadays or a different plant where workers are getting probably similar wages and make a better argument. But, But he chose Walmart, which I think is a flaw. Because if you look at Walmart, it is not that risky of a job. If you are working in the store, it is not that risky of a job. You do not have to be that specialized to work at Walmart. Can you move a cart? Can you put items in the right place? Can you talk to people? There's not that much specialization. Almost anybody can work at Walmart. So when it comes to supply and demand, Walmart can offer you such a low wage because you know they know that you'll take it because at the end of the day, they could just go out and get another random person who can very easily do the things that you do at Walmart and take that $9 wage. So, no, this is not a in a very good comparison. And that's where his argument does fall and break for me. And I know he said that, well, the conservatives will say people get paid what they're worth. And I don't want to just fall into that trap because, oh, he's trying to disprove it and I'm just using that argument against him here. But if anything, it's not that... They are paid what they are worth because I do not think that those people at Walmart are worth $9 an hour, but it is the readiness and replacement of supply that Walmart has in that case. And how often can you find a CEO, a CFO, who can actually ensure that they are constantly innovating, that they are providing lots of value to the company that are no longer just U.S. companies but multinational companies? Those are very rare breeds, and the supply is so limited that you have to offer them more money in order to then entice them 
to come and work for you. And also, if you think about it this way, if there's a really driven worker who's working for Walmart and they make it up to the store manager and then the regional manager and then a division of the entire East Coast, West Coast, the manager of that, these people that are extremely, extremely driven and have the ability to push, push, push and get to the top, they are more valuable because they're constantly pushing, innovating, changing the dynamic, finding a way to save the company money. So not only is the company going to reward them if they're promoting them from inside, but also the fact that they are always innovating, they always have something to bring to the table, that is a very valuable attribute. Whereas if you're just a random Walmart employee who doesn't want anything to change, who just sits there and takes the status quo, if you get put into the CEO seat for that $300 million salary, are you going to be able to innovate, ensure that the company changes, evolves, make more money? Probably not if you don't have that motivation and that drive. And that's why the people that have that are paid higher sums. So it's not just the fact that people are paid what they're worth. Because, like I said, at the end of the day, people are worth more than $9 an hour, in my opinion. But also it's the supply and demand and the challenging level of the job, the specialization needed. And a lot of the specialization, the jobs that require these special skills, have been exported. And the author does bring that up, that offshoring is a large part, or at least has played some part, in lowering wages here because now it's more non it's more service jobs. It's more non-specialized jobs that carry less risk. So, of course, they're going to get paid less money. But, you know, that was me just going after one aspect of his article. And I've gone a long time on this, so I'm going to move on. But if you want to read this article for yourself, I think you should. I think he offers three criticisms of the current system, the free market myth, the myth that the wealthy have earned their money, and then there is one more, the trickle-down economics effect. And I think they're all worth at least reading and understanding what he's saying, and if you can challenge them intellectually, challenge them intellectually. If not, then do some more reading on your own, because it is important to constantly have a push and pull when you're reading things. When I first read it, I was, I was hesitant. I was like, wait, no, not my beautiful free market. And to some degree, I see some of his points, and to other degrees, I, I push back a little bit. But it's important to challenge yourself and always be evolving and taking in more information. And obviously, I know, I've spent a majority of this podcast on this one topic, but it's something that I thought was very, very important. All right, let's jump to this one from the Washington Post. Are banks' deposits insured? The feds must get their story straight. So there's been a lot of confusion. Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell, mainly Janet Yellen, has been jumping back and forth and implying, well, you know, the depositors are safe, but also not all depositors are safe. So there's a little bit of instability in the market and also people are starting to gauge, well, hey, well, what is she actually saying here? Should I take my money out of the bank? Or the bank managers may be saying, oh, well, yeah, she's giving us a little wink, wink, so we can be a little bit risky during these crazy times. So I'll start with a quote that kind of gives us an outline as to why they should ensure that the depositors are 100% safe, no matter what the amount there is. 
And if that's what they're implying, the author brings up a good argument as to why they should tell people this or at least clarify their position if this is what they're telling them. There are, of course, benefits that come from people believing that their deposits are fully insured, even if that's not exactly what Yellen and others are saying. Depositors are less likely to pull their money out of their bank if they think it's safe where it is, and so are less likely to start a bank run in the first place. The problem with the government's deliberately ambiguous approach isn't confined to stock market volatility caused by confusion and re-reinterpretation of official policy. But, of course, there is the flip side. This is saying, hey, if the government's trying to say that depositors, all your money is covered and you shouldn't take any of your money out on the bank, then you know that can be a good thing. We want to make sure that our depositors aren't running away, that they're not stripping the banks of all their valuable assets, of all the money they have in reserve to continue making loans to provide money to the people who actually need to take out at this point, not because they're scared, but because they want to make a capital investment. They maybe need to pay something off, some loans, pay their employees. So this is a good thing. If that's what they intend, if that's what the government's trying to say, then just say it at this point. If you're going to say that everybody is deposit, everybody is safe, then say everybody is safe. But also, if you do say that, you need to make sure that bankers are going to make a little bit more risky plays because they're saying, oh, well, now we have the full faith of the U.S. government behind us so we can make risky plays and then just get bailed out in the end. Quote, there are some good reasons not to guarantee all deposits. In particular, there's a fear hung over from the 2008 financial crisis that bank managers make bigger gambles with deposits if they perceive little downside risk in doing so a phenomenon known as a moral hazard. And that's what I was just describing. If they feel that the government's just going to step in and back them, then they're going to make riskier plays, which is a moral hazard on the part of the government because we don't want the bankers, or they don't want the bankers, just playing willy-nilly with people's money and making bad bets. Quote, also to date, the fees assessed to cover insurance payment payouts haven't been based on the assumption that all deposits are fully insured. So effectively, the Fed would be on the hook for doling out insurance benefits that they haven't yet collected premiums on, end quote. So basically, free money out there, the government would just be on the hook for more money than they've actually said that they can cover or would be willing to cover. So you can see how they're in a bit of a pickle here, and that's probably why they're being so ambiguous. They're trying to keep people from running on the banks, taking their money out, while also trying to make sure that the bank managers are not necessarily thinking, oh, okay, this is a time where we can be more risky. They're trying to get the best of both worlds, and they could end up getting the worst of both worlds. They could get people running on the banks while bankers are making more risky investments, meaning their capital may be tied out there in less than liquid assets, and then when people do make a run on the bank, then they can't pay them back, and it's even worse. So at the end of the day, the government really has stepped in it. They put out their own policy saying, we're going to insure all the depositors of these two banks. We're basically going to give them a bailout, but then we're not going to be clear whether we're going to do it for everybody else as well, because it would just be stupid to do so. And I think it's smart that they're not saying they're just going to insure everything. But then they would have to say that and make sure that 
they're taking on the risk of people going and making a run on the bank. And they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And that is not the way that this is going to work out ideally for them. I'll tell you right now. Ambiguity is not their friend in this case. Quote, officials have been trying to have their cake and eat it too. Oh, wow. I just, I just said that. Look at that. <laughs> Making vague statements about deposits being safe. And that might give the impression every deposit is guaranteed without explicitly saying so. The result is a mealy-mouthed mess with markets swinging wildly in relatively incremental wording changes in public statements from the senior officials. Lingering ambiguity about whether other smaller and mid-sized bank deposits would also be fully protect, protected in the case of a run have led depositors to some smaller institutions including First Republic, rationally moving their money to places that are perceived as safer and too big to fail, end quote, such as J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, end quote. And this is another consequence. Because people don't know if their small local bank is going to be able to insure or the government, they don't know if the government's going to back them if they collapse. They're just, the people are taking their money and going to the big banks that, basically prop up the U.S. economy because they know that the government's not going to let those depositors not get their money back, which is a, it has a kind of centralization effect. People are going to the institutions that are too big to fail, which makes them bigger, meaning they are even more too big to fail, which means the government has to bail them out. It's a centralization effect. These banks are getting lots of deposits. They're getting the big upside upshot of being too big to fail and the government saying, well, we're not going to let them fail. Rather than letting the market do as it may, it fails, they get part of their assets sold off to other banks, and then maybe some regional banks become larger because they buy some of Chase Morgan, uh, JP, JP Morgan Chase or Citibank's assets, and then the free market will keep these mega banks from believing that they are basically able to operate without impunity which is one reason that SVB fail, failed, because at the end of the day, they knew that they had big political backers. And I, I'm not saying, let's be clear, this is my theory. This is not 100% fact. This is not, oh, yes, there is a conspiracy behind the scenes. My theory was they are a tech startup bank. At the end of the day, there's lots of capital throwing, going through there. Silicon Valley is a creative hub for America. Lots of innovation, even if some of it is or seems pointless, there is innovation going on there. There are a lot of jobs there. And they have lots of venture capitalists who have money, who are lobbyists, who are politically involved in the U.S. system. And I have a feeling that behind the scenes, a lot of them were saying, even if something does happen, we don't think it will, we won't think it will, but if something does happen, then we got your back. And we'll go talk to our friends in the government and make sure at least the some of the deposits are covered higher than the insured amount. Now, I can't speak to that, whether that is true or not. It's just kind of a gut feeling I have, and it's kind of my skepticism of power in general. But don't take that as evidence of anything. Don't go around, and let's be clear, I don't think that many people made it to this point in the podcast, but don't go around telling people, oh, I heard on this podcast they were, it's a conspiracy, they were doing this, doing that. It's just my own personal theories on this subject. All right, speaking of a little bit of corruption, let's jump to our last article from Truth Out. Sanders introduces bill to stop bank CEOs from serving as Fed bank regulators. 
So let's start with asking a question. Gregory Becker, do you know who he is? Well, I will enlighten you. Quote, Gregory Becker is the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, the second largest bank to fail in U.S. history. He was also, up until the day the bank failed on March 10th, a member of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, one of the 12 reserve banks in the country charged with keeping institutions like SVB healthy and solvent. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont is on a quest to prevent people like Becker from serving in such positions again. On Thursday, Sanders introduced a bill that would block bank executives from serving on regional Federal Reserve banks that regulate the very banks they run, an extremely common practice that Sanders points out bank executives frequently abuse in order to gain favor in their institutions. End quote. And, you know, this seems to make a little bit of sense at the end of the day. Why would you want the people that are meant to regulate and oversee the banks to have members from those banks on their boards? Maybe they'll be able to cut certain deals. Maybe they'll change certain rules. Maybe they'll be able to be in the council and say, oh, well, yeah, our, you know, you found a few of these problems when you were auditing our bank, but I promise we have it under control. So, of course, that is a valid, genuine concern. And how he's going to do it is by implementing the, quote, Federal Reserve Independence Act. It is, quote, meant to prevent natural conflicts of interest that arise when a bank executive serves in a body that is supposed to rein in the institution that they run. It would also prevent Fed employees and board members from owning stock in any of the institutions under the Fed's purview, end quote. So basically, it's trying to decouple these Fed systems from the banks that they are overseeing. That seems pretty rational, and it seems to be a good move towards ensuring that there are less conflicts of interest. But I also do think that these banks, because they are, especially in the legal system nowadays, technically these banks are companies, and companies are treated like a person, which means they should have some say in how they are quote-unquote governed, so to speak. Just like Americans can go on to different pages when there's a new regulation coming out and they can make comments that the government doesn't necessarily have to take under advisement, but can look through and say, oh, wow, we're getting a lot of negative feedback on this one. Maybe we didn't think about this aspect of it. We don't have the perspective of a layman in Arkansas. We're just kind of in our D.C. bubble. So we'll take their comments under consideration. So, too, should these regulations that or rules that the Fed is going to give to the banks should be commented upon by the banks that will be affected by it. So I think there's a middle ground solution here, which is at the end of the day, we should have a separate small council made up of institutions that are regulated by the Fed in that region who are able to weigh in, give criticism on certain rules, give their opinion. It's not binding. And the Fed board in that area doesn't have to actually say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're definitely, we have to take your opinion. No, they can, they can take the opinion. They cannot take the opinion. But there should be a committee that is able to make suggestions and changes to rules so that at least these companies have a, some say in what's going to be forced upon them by the federal regulators. And this is to make sure, in my opinion, it, twofold. One, they have a voice. But two, to make sure that they feel that they have a voice. Because having a voice and feeling that they have a voice is a different thing. If they don't feel that they have a voice, 
They're going to cozy up to some of the board members. They're going to take them out to fancy golf trips. They're going to pay them a little bit extra money, maybe give them some bigger gifts, even though they're not supposed to. Essentially, it would create a little bit more corruption because now there are board members who don't have a vested interest in any one of the banks in the region, and they don't have a vested interest in regulation that would help any one of the banks. So now they're basically up for bid. And, of course, if we had moral people, moral individuals on that Fed Reserve, then that is less likely to be a problem. But then we still have the question of should the corporations be able to comment on the regulations that will control them? And I think they should have at least some say. So, like I said, a nice little select small committee that has a little bit of, you know, hey, pay attention to this. Maybe you didn't consider this. Powers that allow them to comment and make at least policy, not decisions, but they have the small amount of influence to make sure that the Fed board is actually taking into consideration key things that will affect the business rather than just looking at it from a federal regulation stance. But that's just my solution. And I know normally I don't always provide solutions. I try to break things down and I try to give arguments. I think that this is a solution here because I agree with Sanders for the most part. When you do a gut check, something just doesn't feel right about the banks having their CEOs on the Fed board. But having a separate council where those CEOs could go and make sure that their opinion is heard, I think that's a a pretty middle ground solution. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Laughing Squid. Kitten and parrot adorably nap together in birdhouse. So normally when I take my naps, I like to do it alone, personally. But that's not the case for these two. Quote, an adorable lilac point kitten and a gorgeous yellow-headed Amazon parrot napped peacefully together inside a wooden birdhouse in Ciudad del Este, Paraguay. End quote. And, you know, I don't know why they chose the birdhouse, but, you know, hey, to each his own. Quote, with their respective limbs entwined as they get a little bit of shut-eye, while this friendship seems unlikely, this pair had no problems relaxing with each other by their sides, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or the entire video, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, and Google Podcasts, so you can download the podcast on the go, and listen while you're driving. And of course, the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post the link on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, directly to the podcast on YouTube. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.